Chapter Four of The Uphill Climb by B. M. Bauer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. Chapter Four, Reaction. Even when a man consistently takes life in twenty-four hour doses and likes those doses full-flavored with the joys of this earth, there are intervals when the soul of him is sick and life becomes a nauseous progression of bleak futility. He may, in his revulsion against it, attempt to end it all. He may, in sheer disgust of it, take his doses stronger than ever before, as if he would once for all choke to death that part of him which is fine enough to rebel against it. He may even forswear, in melancholy penitence, that which has served to give it flavor, and vow him vows of abstemiousness at which the grosser part of him chuckles ironically. Or, he may blindly follow the first errant impulse for change of environment, in the half-formed hope that new scenes may, without further effort on his part, serve to make of him a new man, a man for whom he can feel some respect. Ford did none of these things, however. The soul-sick incentive was there, and if he had been a little less of a reasoning animal, and a little less sophisticated, he would probably have forsworn strong drink just as he forswore all responsibility for his inadvertent marriage. His reason and his experience saved him from cluttering his conscience with broken vows, although he did yield to the impulse of change to the extent of leaving sunset while yet the inhabitants were fortifying themselves for the ardors of the day with breakfast and some wild prophecies concerning Ford's next outbreak. Apprehension over Bill's immediate future was popular amongst his friends. Ford's sardonic reference to manslaughter and bounty being repeated often enough in Bill's presence to keep that peace-loving gentleman in a state of trepidation which he sought to hide behind vague warnings. "'He better think twice before he comes bothering around me, by hokey,' Bill would mutter darkly. "'I've stood a whole lot from Ford. I like him when he's himself.' but I've stood about as much as a man can be expected to stand. And he better look out. That's all I got to say. He better look out. Bill himself, it may be observed, incidentally, spent the greater portion of that day in looking out. He was careful not to sit down with his back to a door, for instance, and was keenly interested when a knob turned beneath unseen fingers and plainly relieved when another than Ford entered his presence. Bill's mustache was nearly pulled from its roots that day, but that is not important to the story, which has to do with Ford Campbell, sometime the possessor of a neat legacy in coin, later a rider of the cattle ranges, last presiding genius over the poker table in Scotty's back room in Sunset, always an important factor, and too often a disturbing element, in any community upon which he chose to bestow his dynamic presence. Scotty hoped that Ford would show up for business when the lamps were lighted that night. There had been some delicacy on the part of Ford's acquaintances that day in the matter of calling upon him at the shack. They believed, and hoped, that Ford was sleeping it off, and there was a unanimous reluctance to disturb his slumbers. Sandy, indulging himself in the matter of undisturbed spinal tremors over the haunted chamber, had not left shelter, save when the more insistent shiverings of chilled flesh recalled him from his pleasurable nerve-crimplings and drove him forth to the woodpile. 
so that it was not until evening was well advanced that sunset learned that ford was no longer a potential menace within its meager boundaries bill took a long breath observed meaningly that he'd better go while his credit's good by hokey and for the first time that day sat down with his back toward an outer door ford was not worrying about sunset half as much as sunset was worrying about him he was at that moment playing pinochle half-heartedly with a hospitable sheepherder under the impression that since his host had frankly and profanely professed a revulsion against solitaire and a corresponding hunger for pinochle his duty as a guest lay in satisfying that hunger he played apathetically overlooked several melts he might have made and so lost three games in succession to the gleeful herder who had needed the diversion almost as much as he needed a haircut his sense of social responsibility being eased thereby, Ford took his headache and his dull disgust with life to the wall side of the herder's frowsy bunk, and straightway forgot both in heavy slumber, leaving to the morrow any definite plan for the near future, the far future being as little considered as death and what is said to lie beyond. That day had done for him all he asked of it. It had put him thirty miles and more from sunset, against which he felt a resentment which it little deserved. Of a truth, it was as inoffensive a hamlet as any in that region, and its sudden, overweening desire for a jail was but a legitimate impulse toward self-preservation. The fault was Ford's, in harassing the men of sunset into action. But several times that day, and again while he was pulling the stale-odored blanket snugly about his ears, Ford anathematized the place as a damned rotten hole, and was as nearly thankful as his mood would permit when he remembered that it lay far behind him and was likely to be further before his journeyings were done. Sleep held him until daylight seeped in through the one dingy window. Ford awoke to the acrid smell of scorched bacon, thought at first that Sandy was once more demonstrating his inefficiency as a cook, and when he remembered that sandy's name was printed smudgily upon that page of his life which he had lately turned down as a blotted unlearned lesson is pushed behind an unwilling schoolboy he began to consider seriously his next step outside the sheep were blatting stridently their demand for breakfast the herder bolted coffee and coarse food until he was filled and went away to his dreary day's work telling ford to make himself at home and flinging back a hope of further triumphs in pinochle that night Ford washed the dishes, straightened the blankets in the bunk, swept the grimy floor as well as he could with the stub of broom he found, filled the wood box, and then, being face to face with his day and the problem it held, rolled a cigarette and smoked it in deep meditation. He wanted to get away from town, and poker games, and whiskey, and the tumult it brewed. Something within him hungered for clean, wind-swept reaches and the sane laughter of men, and Ford was accustomed to doing, or at least trying to do, the thing he wanted to do. He was not getting into the wilderness because of any inward struggle towards right living, but because he was sick of town and the sordid life he had lived there. Somewhere, back toward the rim of mountains which showed a faint violet against the sky to the east, he owned a friend, and that friend owned a stock ranch which, Ford judged, must be of goodly extent. Two weeks before, Hearing somehow that Ford Campbell was running a poker game in Sunset, the friend had written and asked him to come and take charge of his outfit, on the plea that, his foreman having died, he was burdened with many cares and in urgent need of help. 
Ford, giving the herder's frying pan a last wipe with the dishcloth, laughed at the thought of taking the responsibility offered him in that letter. It occurred to him, however, that the Double Cross, which was the brand name of Mason's Ranch, might be a pleasant place to visit. It was long since he had seen Chess, and there had been a time when one bed held the two of them through many a long, weary night, when one frying pan cooked the scanty food they shared between them. And there had been a season of grinding days and anxious black nights between, when the one problem, to Ford, consisted of getting Chess Mason out of the wild land where they wandered, and getting him out alive. The problem Ford solved, and at the solution men wondered, Afterward they had drifted apart, but the memory of those months would hold them together with a bond which not even time could break, a bond which would pull taut whenever they met. Ford set down the frying pan and went to the door and looked out. A Chinook had blown up in the night, and although the wind was chill, the snow had disappeared, save where drifts clung to the hollows, shrinking and turning black between the sweeping gusts sodden masses which gave to the prairie a dreary aspect of bleak discomfort but ford was well pleased at the sight of the brown beaten grasses impulse was hardening to decision while he stared across the empty land toward the violet rim of hills a decision to ride over to the double cross and tell chess mason to his face that he was a chump and have a smoke with the old turk anyway chess had married since that vividly remembered time when adventure changed to hardship and hazard and walked hand in hand with them through the wild places. Ford wondered fleetingly if matrimony had changed old Chess. Probably not. At least, not in those essential man traits which appeal to men. Ford suddenly hungered for the man's hearty voice, where kindly humor lurked always, and for a grip of his hand. It was like him to forget all about the herder and the promise of Pinochle that night. He went eagerly to the decrepit little shed which housed Rambler, his long-legged, flea-bitten gray, saddled him purposefully, and rode away toward the violet hills at the trail trot which eats up the miles with the least effort. That night, although he slept in a hamlet which called itself a town, his purpose kept firm hold of him, and he rode away at a decent hour the next morning. And he rode sober. He kept his face toward the hills, and he did not trouble himself with any useless analysis of his unusual temperateness. He was going to blow into the double cross sometime before he slept that night, and have a talk with Chess. He had a pint of fairly good whiskey in his pocket, in case he felt the need of a little on the way, and beyond those two satisfactory certainties he did not attempt to reason. They were significant, in a way, to a man with a tendency towards introspection, but Ford was interested in actualities and never stopped to wonder why he bought a pint rather than a quart, or why, with Chess Mason in his mind, he declined to set in to the poker game which was running tempting jackpots the night before, or why he took one glass of wine before he mounted Rambler and let it go at that. He never once dreamed that the memory of cheerful, steady-going Chess influenced him toward starting on his friendly pilgrimage the Ford Campbell whom Mason had known eight years before, a very different Ford Campbell, be it said, from the one who had caused a whole town to breathe freer for his absence. Of his wife, Ford had thought less often and less uncomfortably since he left the town wherein had occurred the untoward incident of his marriage. He was not unaccustomed to doing foolish things when he was drunk, and as a rule he made it a point to ignore them afterwards. His mysterious matrimonial accident 
was beginning to seem less of a real catastrophe than before, and the anticipation of meeting Chess Mason was rapidly taking precedence of all else in his mind. So, with almost his normal degree of careless equanimity, he faced again the rim of hills, nearer they were now, with a deeper tinge that was almost purple where the shadows lined them here and there. Somewhere out that way lay the Double Cross Ranch, forty miles, one man told him it was, another forty-three. At best it was far enough for the shortened daylight of one fall day to cover the journey. Ford threw away the stub of his after-breakfast cigarette and swung into the trail at a lope. End of chapter 4